0: Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. On this episode we have Colder Bostic. Colter is a pitching coach who actually resides in South Texas and San Antonio. He develops pitchers and really makes a big emphasis on having a holistic view on developing pitchers. talks about the body, the mind, and the future as three main components. In this episode we we not only talk about developing pitchers, we talk about how to help prevent injuries from pitchers, which obviously is a huge topic, and we get into the World Series, some of the things that he sees from the pitchers in the World Series. So we cover multiple facets of the game from the youth level all the way up to due to the professional level in this episode. So I think this is gonna be great content for those out there again who have maybe you have kids who are are youth pitchers, college coaches, professional, everyone. We're gonna have content in here that's that's gonna be applicable to you. If you're interested in getting in contact with Colder, um, his Twitter account is at maximized underscore bsb. So we'll put that link in the show notes. Um, if you don't mind, please make sure to head on over to iTunes and subscribe rate and leave us a review i love reading the reviews um and i just love anytime someone just gives us a five-star rating it, it makes what what i do with this podcast uh you know fulfilling that that others out there find some kind of value in it so please make sure to do that if you haven't already and ladies and gentlemen here is colder bostick All right, we now welcome on Colder Bostick. Uh, Colder, thanks for coming on the show today. I appreciate it, Patrick. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're in Texas right now. Uh, I'm in Ohio. The World Series right now is in Texas. So have, have you had any thoughts about going to any of those games?
1: I've had tons of thoughts. It's just a matter of time and, and finances to, to get up there. But I've had, I've had a bunch of the, the clients that I work with that have made their way up to go and watch. And it's I mean, it seems like even though it is a limited capacity, it seems like it's an electric atmosphere. And I mean, these games, they have to have been fun. If if I could have been at game four, that would have been God, that would have been cool.
0: What, what are they charging? Have you heard?
1: I've I've heard wide ranging. Like you can sit top tier as far back as you can. That's like a base of maybe three hundred bucks. And then it just it goes up from there. I I haven't looked fully into tickets, so I couldn't give you a real
0: number. Yeah. <laughs> So you run a, a pitching, essentially facility um, in, in South Texas, correct?
1: Yeah, I would say it's a, it's a pitching uh, development program. Uh, the fact that uh, location and, and facility as it is, like, it's kind of uh, irrelevant. I kind I, I used to be nomadic. I used to go around to, to work with different athletes in different places, but now they kind of I've centralized and they come to me, but I, I definitely consider this a holistic pitching development program.
0: So when you say holistic pitching development program, I mean, so what does that exactly entail?
1: So uh, a little bit of background. So, I mean, I grew up, I grew up in Wyoming and you don't play baseball year round. And uh, I mean, in, in terms of technology and in terms of information and open source data, like, there was nothing going on back in even, like, 2008 to 2010 when I was a like, sophomore through senior in high school. Like, you didn't have all of this information out there for development and training. So, I just kind of did what everyone did, and you just go step in, you throw, and so long as you throw strikes, you win. I went to college. It was the same thing. I, I don't think I, – I don't recall a coach having, for training purposes, having a radar gun until after I was out of college. Like, Whoa. I didn't see that very often. And I mean, granted, there's some bigger schools that have had that integrated into their into their system, or they have the finances to do it. But I mean, like talking about a junior college in Texas, or something like that, and you're talking about, like summer programs, you go and play around, it wasn't around. And so it wasn't it wasn't at the forefront of people's minds. And I think that's kind of one of the biggest arguments right now with the old school versus new school, like concept and mentality is people don't realize the old school mentality isn't a matter of like, well, you just are, you're not wanting to do this. It was a matter of choice versus availability. If you didn't have the availability to that technology and you didn't have availability to all these different training methodologies, you didn't use them. Your goal was to get the job done and you did it by the most simplistic manner you could. That's why we rely so heavily on guys that have played the game at the highest levels to learn from because they can tell you how they executed. They may not be able to tell you, the biomechanics behind what they did. They may not be able to give you all the intricacies of your, their spin metrics and all that, but they can tell you what they did, what they thought and why they did it to get the job done. And that's essentially how I embody the old school philosophy versus now we have all this technology and data and analytics to piece together the surrounding, like the peripheral effects of the how's and why's versus the actual experience of doing it. And we're trying to impart that upon athletes. So I mean, in holistic, the reason I call it holistic is my job is to learn as much as I possibly can from every school of thought, every philosophical like school, like driveline, top velocity, uh, Texas baseball ranch, Florida baseball ranch, individual coaches and individual programs that maybe bring new light to a way of thinking or a different drill set or a way of using a modality, something I, my job is to try and learn as much as I can. So that I can inevitably teach that information to my athletes on the basis that is right for them. Not every athlete is going to learn the same way. Uh, Not every athlete is going to utilize tools in the same manner. Or, I mean, I there are some guys that a core velocity belt is a fantastic tool. For other guys that maybe rotate really well and maybe that's not a key component to what they're doing. I may I may never put them on a core velocity belt because that's going to force them to think about doing something that's not helpful to them at that moment. So my job having a holistic philosophy is being able to piece and pick what I need to apply to that athlete to teach them. And so it's all encompassing.
0: Well, just going back a little bit. So you grew up in Wyoming. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine. I mean, I didn't even know they had baseball fields in Wyoming. (laughs) It's hard to find,
1: Um, (laughs) man. So so get this, so there's, there. I still see this conversation going on all the time about like, is it better to be sports specific or multi-sport? When you grow up like in a place like Wyoming, where you have all these different seasons, you don't really have a choice. It's not, it's not, you get to pick what you're going to do. It's kind of just the expectation that in the fall, you play football. In the winter, you play basketball. In the spring, you go out and play either soccer or track. And then in the summer, you play baseball because we didn't even have high school baseball. We have American Legion baseball. So you play from May through July, and if your team was really good, you go to a tournament in August. But, I mean, that's how your window was broken up. You you didn't get to be sports-specific because you had nothing else to do. Um, I chose that uh, – I think it was after my – it was my sophomore year in, in high school. I chose to stop playing football because I had heard about – and I, I laugh about it to this day is I heard about fall baseball. and. I was like, wait, they play, they play baseball in the fall and other places in the country. I had to go and meet with a team out of Billings, Montana, which was only about a two and a half hour drive. And that team would drive eight hours to Spokane or Salt Lake City or Denver to go and play in these tournaments. I, I mean, I got my hardship license at the age of 15 to be able to drive to all these different places to go and play baseball in September and October because we didn't have access to that. And so I had to, I had to sacrifice playing football so I could go and get more reps playing baseball in the fall. And then as we started going, I realized, I was like, man, I play during these three months in the summer and I play during these three months during the, during the winter, but how am I increasing my, my set during the winter going into the spring? So I, my, my senior year, I quit, I quit playing basketball. That way I could get into a barn when it's snowing and go throw into a net five days out of the week and throw bullpens by myself. Like you have to start learning how, what your needs are as an athlete when you're in those kind of situations. Cause the expectation is you focus on your sport during that time of the year and you don't worry about anything else.
0: Yeah. And you brought some good points there. I think it's interesting how, uh, you said, you know, your senior year, you didn't play basketball. And I think we live in this era now where there, there's two different sides. You can see this on Twitter, whether it's like one side or it's old school, it's like, oh, you need to be playing multiple sports like from day one till like the day you stop playing sports, it seems like. And then there's the yeah. other side of, of, you know, being really sports specific and focusing on one sport from the time you're seven or eight years old until all the way up. And I think like most things, usually it's, it's got it's probably somewhere in the middle. And I think it's also we got to take into a context of it's it just it's a little bit different for each individual athlete. I mean, how how good are they? Does Mike Trout need to play fall ball when he's a junior in high school? If he doesn't want to, probably not. No, he probably doesn't need to play high school baseball if he doesn't want to. But a lot of, did, a lot of guys see, aren't. Go did ahead. Did you
1: see that video that came out on Twitter a couple of days? ago? It may have been yesterday, but it was of Mookie Betts just being a beast in every different sport. Yep. And I, did I, see I that, made a. Yeah. Comment I made a comment out there saying that athleticism is not sports specific, but there is, there is a gap in talent and that's just something we have to accept. There are going to be guys that have thresholds of talent that are so much higher than the rest of us. And that, that's why there are the elites in certain sports. And that's why there are guys that have to grind every single day to be average at best. And then there are guys, that's why the attrition rate in sports is so high is Eventually, you realize you've tapped out where you are, and I think that I think that because of that, and because of the uh, 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 the advancement in technology and all that kind of stuff, we've been able to kind of we've leapt over a couple of the gaps that, that were there because of the things that maybe we did or did not know about guys and strength and conditioning, and our understanding of the body has really developed, and the way that we train the bodies has really advanced in the last few years, and so I think. I think we've kind of lessened the attrition rate at a certain point, but there is always going to be that cliff and there's always going to be that massive drop-off. Um, I mean, think about Patrick Mahomes, that dude, absolute stud, everything he wants to do. He did that at Texas tech. He was, I mean, baseball, well, hold on, wait. Yeah. Mahomes played baseball at tech. I think
0: really. he was drafted in high school out of ba- for baseball.
1: Yes. Yes. I don't, yeah. I, you're right. I don't think he played there. It was, it was uh, Kyler Murray that played at Oklahoma yeah, for baseball yeah. and football. I mean, those kind of guys, were they at their absolute best in either one of those sports when they were playing both sports? I don't think so. And so I think that when both of them decided to go and play football professionally, I think that's why you're seeing their game continually escalate. I mean, Mahomes is just getting better and better and better because he's finally focusing on that sport. His, I mean, I could be using the terminology incorrectly here, but I believe that the his... <laughs> his threshold for neuroplasticity regarding sports specific action was just so big. And now that he finally gets to, to focus in on it, it's the, the, the possibilities are endless for him. But what, what would have happened if a guy like him or Kyler Murray or like a Jameis Winston or something like that, what if these guys, rather than choosing football had decided to go to baseball, how good could they have been?
0: Or like, Bo Jackson. That's the ultimate example. The ultimate example, it, Bo Jackson.
1: Ex- well, I mean, I wish I could have seen that dude play. I mean, the highlights don't do him justice. No. But, I mean, yeah, you're right. And I mean, there's those kind of guys that can be able to play the NFL and, uh, and uh, MLB at the exact same time, like splitting seasons, is crazy. But if they would have been able to dedicate to just one sport, no idea. The injuries may not have happened. Injuries may have happened. Who knows? But the skill level, we, we could have, we could have seen a completely different breed of monster out there.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important too to to reiterate again. I mean, we're we're not saying that you should only have to play one sport. I, like I said earlier, I think it is just depend on the player, depend on what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and there there is nothing wrong with just wanting to have fun or and just wanting to play sports, like just to socialize and meet there, other there's people. A- and there's, that's totally fine
1: there's a lot of residual benefit from playing multiple sports, things that you won't get when you're training as a sport specific athlete, like the agility work that you get playing basketball or football and the kind of conditioning that you get doing uh, either of those sports is completely different than what you'd get playing baseball. But you're also maybe missing out on a certain number of reps or a certain like patterning ability that you would get if you had more time during your baseball training. Like, so it's always a coin toss. And unfortunately that coin toss is not for the athlete the coin toss is usually in the parents hands saying how do i allocate my child's time how do i how do i keep them interested in all of these things rather than letting them burn out on one thing at one time it's it's almost an impossible it's it's an impossible task as a parent to choose what is right for your kid because you don't know what their talent level is going to be you don't know what their threshold will be you don't know when that time clock is going to come to an end so You're just trying to do your absolute best for them and hope that they can blossom in one place or another.
0: And you're not an expert, or really none of us in a sense are, but, I mean, you're not in baseball full-time. So, I mean, parents just, they don't know anything in terms of the player development, the physiology of the human body. There's so many different factors that go into uh, becoming a really good baseball player. And, And they don't know. It'd be like me if my kid wants to be the greatest guitar player of all time. I don't know. I mean, I, I never picked up a guitar in my life. So, I mean, you're just going to yeah. listen to people who you think know, and hopefully they steer you down the right path. But a lot of times those people don't know either.
1: <laughs> I I mean, <laughs> there's a, a quote from Tom house. I, I went to a camp with him just to kind of to get a chance to meet him and learn from him. And he, he came, he said that misinformation is just as harmful whether or not it has good intentions or bad intentions. And I don't think that there is a single coach out there doing anything with malicious intent like, oh well, these, these people are going to come to me and I'm purposely going to ruin their career. I have never experienced that. I've met some bad coaches, but I don't think it's because they're purposely bad coaches. It's just maybe the heart's in the wrong place doing things. But that that is that's the problem is you never know if you're getting the right information you have to trust someone's track record you have to trust the way that they take care of a kid and the way they interact with a certain kid and you have to know that there's a plan or a program in place it can't just be just every day is a new day Um, I think that's one of the biggest issues with like the lesson-based culture uh, today is that we're incentivized by the money per session rather than the long-term goal of things and so that's why like I said mine is a holistic pitching development program not every day is going to be the most engaging day in the world. We may do small things, but we have to get the small things done right before you can go and accomplish the big things. And so it's 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 all about time and making sure that we're pushing development in the right direction and not just getting one task done to say, good job, Timmy, good job.
0: So, uh, yeah, take me through a little bit of that. When you talk about small things, big things, I mean, do you put your guys into buckets You know, if they need to work on all the same thing and so that way you're not having to, to do this guy needs to do this drill and this guy needs to do this movement prep or work on plyo, you know, do plyo balls or whatever it is. How do you structure your actual program and your players who train in it? So
1: within the program, um, I, I do small group kind of setting. And so when the guys are with me in a group, we are focusing on on generalized plans saying, all right, today, this is what we're going to accomplish. We're going to go through and do this, this, and this. Everyone's going to do the same thing. However, within those drills or within those, uh, those movements or activities that we're doing, I'm going to be individually coaching those guys on what makes that movement or what makes that drill specific to them. And then when they go away from it and they have their programming outside of the time that they're with me, then it's, all right, how did this translate to what you're supposed to be doing and your individual delivery or mechanics or whatever it may be? And how did this affect your ability to do this? Like, we have to understand that no, it's, there can never be a cookie cutter system, but there has to be a foundation. There has to be these guardrails in place to make sure that everything's going in there and you can fill in the gaps with your own athleticism. You don't need to try and be somebody else, but you also don't want to try and go off and do something completely crazy because you don't know it's going to get done. I mean, there are a few guys that have gone off and done the, like, the the road that's never been taken before. Like, you've got the Tim Lincecums and the Trevor Bowers. But those guys eventually have brought that into the mainstream and people are now trying to follow what they did. So that's not the the road untaken. It's now the, it's just a different variation of the same path we're all trying to get on.
0: Yeah, that makes that makes sense. It's the outliers. I mean, everyone picks like one outlier and be like, "Oh, it worked for him." Like, why not? <laughs> A few years ago in the hitting world, it was Josh Donaldson, and before you know that, you looked on Twitter and everyone's doing leg kicks and everyone's doing this and that. They're trying to emulate what's hot. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I think that uh, I think that's one of the big things about like social media right now is the fact that we can see what people are doing and we can understand. Like, we, we may not always understand what they're doing, but at least we can try to dissect it. And I think that there's, I think there has to be a really good balance. Like you obviously don't want to overcoach your athletes. You don't want to put yourself in a position where you overload and you're like microscopic about everything that they do because overcoaching leads to overdependency. That athlete looks at you like, all right, how do I do this now? But you also don't want to be so hands off and be so skeletal in your planning that you let them go out searching for themselves because when you search too hard, you can find chaos. Um, I, I will never forget. I literally, I mean, I'm six foot four. I didn't realize I was going to be 220, 240, like in my, in my prime. I got, I got big when I was in college. I don't, I don't have the same frame as Tim Lincecum, but I went through a little phase where I watched one video. and I was like, I can replicate that. And I tried to do it. I could not hit the broadside of a barn and my back has never hurt that bad in my life. Cause I kept trying to twist and torque. I didn't have the same movement. I didn't have the mechanics. I didn't have I didn't have an understanding of what he was doing and why he did it for himself. So it didn't work for me. But if I'd had a coach that maybe understood a little bit more and said, Hey, how about we take one concept from his delivery? How about we take his understanding of rotation of the hips, getting down the mound and that really up-tempo dynamic uh, delivery that he has. Let's try and make one thing happen and see what, know what happens rather than mirror the whole concept.
0: Yeah, it, that's, it's, it is something that uh, I know players, Struggle with because they they you want to be great now you don't want mm-hmm. to just do the take one bit bits and pieces and and you know over time years you know years go by and and you know you've now had this foundation you I want it right now that's just a human thing I think too but when, when you when a guy comes to you for the first time colder and wants to work with you do you just throw him in a group or is it You meet with them one on one first and take them through you know, an entire assessment. How does that work?
1: It's kind of a, it's individual. It's you kind of have to get an idea. Like before a guy comes to work with me, I kind of get a chance to know them, ask them a little bit of understanding where they're coming from, what they've been doing, finding the right group that they would either fit in with or work with right off the bat. And then it's a matter of, it's a matter of setting an educational level. Like, what do you know? And you should never assume that you either know what they do or do not know. You need to find out what is the threshold of knowledge that these, that your athlete needs to have for whatever given level they're at, and then put them into a situation, see how they do, see how they handle the relationship between you and them first, and then go and sit down and have that educational content and say, all right, here are the things you need to understand that way as we go forward. When, when I say something, this terminology is not foreign to you or this concept is not foreign. So building that relationship is the first thing that has to happen. And I don't care if that's if you're dealing with a little league kid and just meeting in a cage or if you're dealing with professional athletes. The relationship has to come first because you have to have that trust and you have to have that buy in. And then you can start giving information and start having that back and forth, knowing that you are both on the same page and moving in the right direction.
0: And I think that that's where objective information comes in hand. Maybe one of the most important things about it to help create that buy-in and using information to be like, "Hey, like you're here. If you want to be get to you know X, Y, and Z or this level, like you need to be here. Here's where everyone, mm-hmm. where their numbers are at. And it's like, like what do you you tell me? And it's like you don't even have to really say anything. They can just see it for themselves, and yep. it sells them. It sells itself. Yep. I mean, you, uh,
1: I, I had a mentor, his name was John Matlack. uh, And he, he presented me the question. He said, how good can you be? And it's not a matter of like, it's not a matter of how do you find out? It's a matter of when will you find out? The only way you'll ever find out how good you're, you're ever going to be is when you have to look back at it in retrospect and say, that was the absolute best I was ever at. And so you've got to be, you have to instill this, this concept within yourself as a coach and in your athletes saying every single day, you need to be working to get better at something and pushing yourself to a new level. That way you, the next day you can try and top that, or you can try and be better than what you were. And then when everything is said and done, you can look back and say, I did everything that I could in my power to be the best version of myself and be the best athlete. If you're sitting there with a destination in mind, once you reach it, all the motivation's gone. If you have a journey in mind saying, I want to be able to accomplish these things as I go, it's kind of, it makes it a, it's, it's, it's smaller bites to a bigger goal rather than just you've reached a platform.
0: Yeah, you said that perfectly well. It's all, it's all about the journey. I think the journey is the fun part. And as yep. you said, like once you actually get there, once you actually get the job you want or, or whatnot, then you kind of get there and you're like, well now what? Cause there's, there was nothing, it's, it's gotta be deeper than that because, uh, you know, just life is short and long at the same time. And so just relying on uh, titles or materialistic things that you're able to buy over time. Um, it just doesn't have the same amount of satisfaction to me anyway. And it sounds like for you too.
1: Well, I, I heard, I heard a quote, um, uh, God, if I can remember who it was, it was, I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast a couple days ago. I, I have, I have an hour long drive that I have to make every, uh, two days out of the week to go and meet with athletes and every morning I listen to the podcast up and down and something, one of his guests said, you get to choose your regrets in life. And that really like that hit me. I was, I, I was like typing that down on my phone. I was like, I, I, I feel like I need to use that a lot because you need to realize as an athlete that you, the, the things that you choose to do, you only get to choose to do them once and you only get to be one place at one time, one level at a time. And if you choose to do certain things, that's on you. If there are certain things that are out of your out of your control and you just have to go through them, that's fine. But the things that you choose are the things that you're going to eventually have the opportunity to relish or regret. And as a coach, it's the same thing. I can choose to do things the easy way, or I can choose to do things maybe that kind of push the boundaries. But if I look back on it and say, man, I really did that kid a disservice because I didn't do enough for him, or I didn't try to learn more so I can help him in a different manner. That regret's going to eat away at me a lot. Um, I think that in the end, we're all going to be able to say, man, I wish we could have worked a little bit harder. I, I, I could have put more time doing something, but I think that's everyone. Even like I, I guarantee Derek Jeter has sat in his, in his living room one time going, man, I wish I could have done something more. I, I mean, that dudes he's going to be a first ballot hall of famer, but I mean, I don't ever want to be in the situation where I, I say I could have done more I chose not to like that. Mm -hmm. That's, that would just eat away at me. And I hope that eat away. I would, I would hope that would eat away at an athlete saying, I wish I could have put more time and effort into learning what to do and had a better understanding of myself rather than just choosing to go through life with blinders on and just hoping that I was going to get there.
0: Yeah. Playing the what if game is, is never a good thing. And especially for an athlete, uh, you know, for me, I just, I, I knew looking back, I just wasn't good enough. I mean, it wasn't because of anything else. And, you're able to move on with your life knowing that, hey, you just didn't have it. I mean, you did everything you were supposed to do. You, you tried everything. You went everywhere across the country looking for answers. You just weren't good enough. And then you can move on and have no regrets. Um, where, where were you – where did you say you were driving to, two hours? So, I, I, Billings, Montana. So like, Every week? I, probably like
1: two or three times a, a, a week. Um, I got to leave, I I got to leave school before like the last two classes of the day. That way I could get up to Billings on time for practice and then come back home and whatnot. It was, I, my, my experience was completely bizarre versus what most people have availability. Like they get out of school and drive five minutes to a facility. I had to drive two hours North to get up to a practice time and then come home and then drive all over the Northwest to be able to go to games.
0: But what what about you said you said like now every week, didn't you say you, you drive somewhere for an hour?
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um so I live in San Antonio, Texas, and I've got a group of guys that I work with in Austin. And so the only time that I have available to work with them is on two days a week in the morning. So I drive up, I, I leave my house at five o'clock in the morning to get up to Austin, work with those guys. That way they can get their their stuff done for the day before they go to school. And then I come back home and then I, I train guys throughout the evening.
0: Wow. That's imp- how, how did, how did that happen? I mean.
1: <laughs> Uh, networking just, I mean, I, I work with one guy. Um, he believes in what we do. We see the success on the field and people come and ask and say, Hey, who are you working with? And he said, Colter Bostic gives my phone number, a couple families call and say, Hey, we know you're in the area. Can we jump in? Can we get a session time? Can we create a group? And then it just, it just kind of evolved from there.
0: That's impressive, man. Yeah. I know we were talking on the phone um, a few times and I told you about Texas and you were like, yeah, I live in San Antonio. And then I drive to Austin. I'm like, for someone who lives in Ohio, like the Texas is just one big blur. It's just, you know, everything's, I don't even know where anything is in Texas, but yeah, <laughs> kudos and, to you. I mean, kudos to those kids too. It sounds like they're training before they even go to school.
1: Yeah. So I give, I give those kids massive credit, like at the absolute latest, the, like the, the latest they could wake up is maybe six twenty to get, to get up and be able to get over there. A couple of them, their parents have to still drive them because they're not, they're not old enough yet. And for that, I mean, I, I am grateful to parents that are willing to forego a couple minutes of sleep and, and whatnot and drive their kid. But I mean, I, I love that when kids take it upon themselves, I get text messages from parents saying, Hey, I almost overslept. I apologize. We're going to be a minute late. Like so-and-so had to come and wake me up and remind me we had to go and train this morning. I'm like, that kind of thing. I love that. I love that kind of like drive and the fact that the kid was the one that was up. I actually have a group. And once again, Texas is a massive state. Um, San Antonio is kind of central Texas and down in a place called the Valley, a place called Edinburgh. It's about four hours away. I've got a group of kids that come, that came up to me once a week. They would drive eight hours round trip to come and train with me for anywhere between an hour to two hours every weekend throughout the Corona break and during the summer. And now, now they come up once every two to three weeks to get like, I'll I'll be on zoom with them and we'll, we'll kind of talk about their programming, but they'll come up to be in person. That way we can work on specific things. And those families, I mean, they sacrifice a lot to be able to give their kid the opportunity to train and do the things that they believe in.
0: Oh, that's just, it's awesome to hear kids just taking ownership Of their own career, and and, I mean, you'll run through a wall as a coach for for a kid who's who's willing to do whatever it takes to to reach their potential. Yes, yeah, I I love the fact that I always love hearing about stuff like that. I've been able to experience that myself too. But it never gets old when when someone like yourself just you know talks about it. Kids, you know, waking up early or driving really far or you know texting you questions all the time you know all that all that stuff i think is is great i mean it's great for not only them but it's good for the game it's the future of the game Mm -hmm. which which is outstanding and um one of the things that i i wanted to talk to you about was it it seems that we're in an era where velocity i I think that we're starting to make a transition now because the last few years has been velocity 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 and I, all you got to do is watch the World Series and see like how important velocity is. Like It's absurd.
1: Flame However, after
0: flame after flame after flame. Oh, it's Freaking unbelievable. Dustin May
1: 101.5 yesterday. What the oh.
0: <laughs> but, but how can you safely try to help a, a kid who's not fully developed yet, he's still in puberty, he's 15, 14 years old, 16 years old. How do you help them increase their velocity while making sure that, they're not going to get hurt. And I know you can't control all of that, but there's, there seems to be that there's got to be a certain way to do it in a safe manner. So
1: I don't claim to have every answer. I rely on people that are much smarter than me to bounce ideas off of and whatnot. But the, the easiest answer I can give you is it goes back to that relationship and the trust is you have to be willing to tell somebody don't worry. And there's there's that whole thing of like, hey, it's you're you're doing these kids a disservice if you tell them to wait for velocity. Yeah, you're right. You want to be pushing the envelope. You want to be training, but you also have to be smart. Like you have to understand the ramifications of the things that you're putting these kids through. If you're doing a heavy weighted ball program, like even if you're just throwing tons of plyo balls, anything that you do has has a consequence on the body. If we're throwing overweighted balls, we are putting severe strain on the shoulder by extending that max external rotation. Yeah, it makes the five-ounce ball feel better, but at what cost are we doing that to them? And are we doing that to athletes that maybe are not physically mature enough to handle that kind of stress on their body? They don't have the muscular structure or the, the physical maturity to be able to handle and rebound from that kind of work? Are we balancing it right with yeah, just because we do a few overweighted throws, are we doing the rehab stuff that's required to take care of the the muscles and everything that's involved in that process? Are we are we are we doing the work after, not just doing the sexy work of throwing the ball with the radar gun? Are we doing underweighted balls? I think the underweighted balls may be the more dangerous piece because that's where we're getting all that extra torque on the elbow. But the the underweighted balls like lights up the radar gun even more. Like You watch a kid do a running gun with a three ounce ball, and they hit a hundred miles an hour. It's like, congratulations, I guess. Like, show (laughs) me what show me what you can do when you get on a mound. And I I have a velo program that I've talked with some brilliant people about, and I I believe it worked. We did a four, five, and six ounce ball. I believe that a twenty percent difference off the standard the standard unit that we use the five ounce baseball. I think that is as far as I want to go when doing high intensity high loads of work. Yeah, I do occasionally have guys throw anywhere between seven to nine ounces for particular types of throws in particular types of drills. But I'm also being cautious and saying, I don't think you as an athlete are ready to do this kind of work. Because the other pieces that go into the process, the other pieces that go through your, your whole delivery may not be where you're going to be able to sustain doing this one exercise because of this weighted implement. and. It's just a matter of understanding who the athlete is, understanding where they are physically and biologically, and just educating them as to the whys, hows, and the risks of what they're doing. Um, there is no perfect formula. You never know when a kid is going to finally sprout and finally the good work that you've been doing in laying the foundation of their strength and their, mo- like their movements and all their patterning. I can have a guy that does all the right things for a year, and doesn't see a single mile per hour gain. And then all of a sudden, one day they wake up and their body has just said, hey, all right, I'm ready to go. And then they make this massive jump. And it's kind of like, well, it was just part of the process. No, your body finally hit the point where it was ready to do it. It had the capability to do the things that you've been training it to do now. And we have to keep you healthy to get to that point. If you're always hurt getting to that point, your body's not gonna wanna keep pushing the envelope.
0: <clears throat> that was really well said, and I, I think the other big issue, maybe this is the actual the main issue, is people – because the, there is a business component proponent of it, too, of, of kids increasing velocity, and they can share it on social media, and now they that's going to allow them to acquire more kids because what kid doesn't want to make an increase in velocity? Yep. What kid doesn't want to throw 90-plus? But they're doing it at the expense of what you just explained, uh, a potential injury, because they're solely focused on the kid throwing harder, which is going to make them more money. I think we're all guilty of that. I
1: mean, that's yeah. that's the problem with social media is social media is not, look what I've learned. It's look what I've done, and you can learn from how I did it. Like, that's that's the platform is you're trying to show something off, and everyone's guilty of it, but – I think the intentions behind it obviously changed account to account. Um, but like something like that, like when I ran, a, when I ran my VLO program over the summer with a lot of my college guys and college bound guys, I got a lot of interest from the videos that I posted and the games that we showed from parents saying, Oh yeah, my son needs, to, my son needs to gain Velo too. And I'm like, well, that's great. Tell me what has he been doing? Where is he at? Let me see video of how he's throwing. Let me talk to him. And we'll go through and I'll say, Hey, I don't feel comfortable putting your son through the same Velo program or any kind of variation of it because we need to clean up the way his body moves and the like, how his body synchronizes. We need to get his arm in the right spot because you can tell that his elbow's leading his shoulder. He's not, re- his joints aren't aligning it at, at release. Like there's a lot of pieces that are out of place. That if they're out of place now, when you put these implements at higher intense, they're going to only exaggerate how bad these things are. And you have to be. You have to be willing to say no. You have to be willing to tell people, I'm not going to do something just because you want to pay for it. I'm going to do something in the best interest of your son, and it may take a while. And I, I think that's just. I think that's an important thing is being able to say no and have patience.
0: Yeah, and the, the same thing happens on the hitting side with with bat speed stuff and and things like that. You know, increasing bat speed, increasing exit velocity. I think the thing that the difference is is no kids really get hurt by trying to increase exit velocity their swing might get worse but i i
1: mean i would i would even disagree with that because i've i've seen especially down here we i mean we have the year-round year-round playing we have we have fall ball summer ball we even have all the showcases during the winter and all that and then guys are still going in training i've seen guys that have i mean that have fractures in their spine and have over have over swung trying really? to train and compete at the same time yes there's a rampant amount of like spine fractures happening in down in this region that I've seen, and I'm not saying it's all in one area, but I've seen a bunch of injuries from overdoing the amount of training and swinging because guys are trying to like either create more of Mm. that launch path and they're trying to torque their bodies faster and faster and faster every single day. It just, I mean, the body can only handle so much at a certain time and you, you just gotta be smart.
0: Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I'm sure it again. It's different on you know, where you are in Texas, where kids can play all year round outside, versus Ohio. They have no choice, but uh, you know you can't play winter ball around here. So, yep. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 interesting. Um, but I love. I do. I do really do like how um, transparent you are with that that question, because it, you see that. I think clearly you have good intentions, and and you're honest when people. Say like, what do you do, um, and you know why are you doing it? And I just think we need more, we need more people to to do exactly exactly what you're doing. And I think if anything, it's going to help you out in your career as a coach, or you know, if you eventually one day become a um, a coordinator, whatever it may be. Uh, people, you have that trust factor, which is, is so important. And I just I, I just I, I think I, it's a, it's good for the game. It's it's one of the things that one of the reasons I wanted to just bring it up on here just so people start start talking about it a little bit more and we we're able to educate more people and parents and, and coaches of, of all ages. Um, and I know you you work with not just with kids, high school kids, what we're talking about of um, trying to ramp up velocity, but also with college guys and some pro guys too. Mm-hmm. And when, when they're in season, I'm sure they're, they have to do what their coach wants them to do at the college or pro level. However, in the summertime for a college guy or maybe in the offseason for a pro guy, how do you make sure that everyone's happy in the sense that, you know, that this kid's not going to get in trouble with this college coach or pro organization for working with you or doing your program mm-hmm. while also making sure that he's, he's doing it safe and, and just the whole holistic approach with, with that old dilemma?
1: All right. That one is the tricky one. Um, It boils down to communication, once again, is who's really in control is really, it's the athlete. Um, The athlete has to be the one taking control. Now, I have 100% support for the coaches that say, I don't want you to do this, only so long as they have a substantive reason for why they say that, like, I don't want you to do this because... I don't need you to get more quote unquote innings or work on the mound. You already threw a hundred innings during the season. You probably just need to take some time to rest, go to the gym, get stronger, let your body revamp and just maybe go out and throw and do a throwing program. Don't try to get on the mound. You don't need more work. And if that's their philosophy, I I'm perfectly fine with that. We can work different things around that. If it's a matter of, Oh, well, no, I don't want you to do this because it doesn't match what I'm doing. That's a problem. Like you're, you're, once again, this is the athlete's career. They have to be the one that has the final say eventually to what they're doing. The the coaches are the ones that are they're trying to help once again create the guardrails to push their development in one direction and if you're on college scholarship, you're beholden to the college program because they they need you to compete and they need you to be healthy to compete for them. If you're playing for a pro organization, They're the ones paying your bills, so you better listen to what they're doing, and you better make sure that you're following the program that they believe is in your best interest to move you along in their system so you can help win and make the organization money um, and win championships. But I think that at the pro level, I think that's why we see so many, I guess, third parties that are out there working with these guys during the offseason, especially now when it's more prevalent for guys to be training year-round you're seeing their advancements and you're seeing how the guys come back stronger the next season. They've developed a new tool. They've maybe they wanted to go from 150 innings to 180 innings on the year or 200 innings as a starter or whatever it may be. These organizations are starting to become more embracing of there are other things that you can do outside of our organization during your own time. And it's up to you to get better doing that. We like, they've established the guardrails of we need to keep you healthy, we need to keep you on the field, and we need to keep you producing. Once you're on your own time, your job is to come back to us better. That way you can advance through the system. And I think that's why the professional uh, ranks have allowed the athletes to do that. But I also know that there are organizations that say, hey, some guys can uh, go off and do their own thing. You need to rest. You probably need to just relax for a little bit because you put on a lot of work during the season. Let your body grow, and then we'll talk about it later. And it's it's all a communication thing. At the high school level, high school athletes have so many different voices coming at them. They have their personal trainer. They have their high school coach. They have their summer coach. They have their strength and conditioning guy that they go to. They've got their nutrition guy if their parents uh, put them out there. They've got all these different voices, and it really has to come down to the athlete and the family being able to say, hey, this is what we need. This is what we want to do. Let's get your opinions, but inevitably we have to be the ones that make the decision for ourselves and our son as to what we think is the best thing for them and so long as that communication is out there and so long as everyone is on the same page of they're in here for the interest of the kid and the athlete not themselves and if they realize that when everyone works together to do things right for the one kid their hope everyone's program gets better and it's it's not a selfish thing it's a community it's a community piece I guess is the best way to put it
0: so how, how do you know when it's time for a kid to, to – sh- he needs to shut it down and rest? I mean, is there – because I hear there's – is it an innings thing? Is it how many pitches he's thrown con- consistently? Like, how do you know when it's time? Like, this kid doesn't need to shut it down.
1: Um, just talking to him. like I mean, there, there's a guy that I, I worked with uh, who – I think he threw for, like, three straight years. And this was before he and I had gotten together. Like, he came he's like, yeah, I, I've never really taken time off. I'm like, have you ever, has your arm ever hurt? Well, no. And I looked at him, I, I watched how he threw and I'm like, well, I, I can understand why. Like your body has literally dropped itself down to a threshold. Like you can't perform at the level that you were a year and a half ago because you haven't given your time, your body time to re- recover and grow. And even though you feel fine, yeah, maybe it's because your body's just lucky or maybe you keep yourself in really good shape. But how about we take a couple of weeks off and let's just see what happens when we go to the gym and do this kind of stuff. And then we, we, I give him my reasoning and say, hey, I think that once you give your arm, maybe the next six weeks, when we go back out and throw, and once we've done these things, just tell me how it feels. And when they go back, they're like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, my, arm, I'm, my arms finally soar a little bit after the first time throwing. It's like, well, you've lived in this state of constant like breakdown, and you've, you've been lucky not to have a de- debilitating breakdown, but your body is continually fatigued. We've got to let the body rest. I think all these kids are undertrained, underhydrated, and under-recovered because they always want to keep pushing. They want to be better every single day, and they don't know how to take time off away from it. So it's really just having that communication, understanding what the player's history is, and just be willing to say, in my gut, I believe you need to take time off, and I can give you a goal and a path of what we're going to do during that time to make sure that you're continually getting better. You just don't need to be throwing on the mound. And I think that's I think that goes a long way with athletes.
0: One of the one of the cool, cool things that I've been able to um, pay more attention to recently is a just watching by watching pitchers and, and watching pitchers tip pitches and watching pitchers just paying attention more than anything, it, um, especially in the playoffs. Is that something that you work with guys on? Is is making sure that it's not just keeping the arm safe. It's not just about, you know, how hard you throw or location or anything like that. But, like, hey, like you, ne- you can't be giving away what you're throwing, too, because that happens a lot.
1: Yeah. Um, there are – the nuances of the game are the things that get swept under the rug when you're talking about, like, a lot of development things because everyone's so focused on the velocity. Everyone's so focused on the metrics of a curveball and all this kind of stuff. We forget that these are human beings on the mound – that have little twerks and tweaks and quirks and all that kind of stuff that maybe they give a maybe maybe a guy presets his glove a little different or i i'm i'm starting to see a comeback of guys with their tongue out their mouth oh i'm going to throw a curveball or something like that I, it's weird how the human brain tries to materialize a thought process and when the body is exuding a physical activity to say what their mind, their mind is thinking That's the job of a coach and someone that knows that kid and knows what they're seeing to be able to say, hey, bud, um, how about when you throw this, I want you to make sure you make a conscious effort of closing your side or maybe hide your face below the glove or make sure that you grip this pitch before every pitch. That way your fingers have to move. Don't tip this or... Your glove is flying up every time you throw the fastball because you're trying to get on top of it, but your glove's going out because you have to stay through the curveball. Whatever the whatever the tipping or cueing may be, you just got you have to be able to have that relationship with the kid to be able to tell them that's what you're seeing, and you have to have the evidence to show them because a lot of the time, I've I've seen some people come up with some crazy things like, oh, I knew he was going to throw a curveball. Why? Uh, because his nose flared. Like whatever it may be. Like people. <laughs> people are very superstitious in baseball and they always want to be the smartest one in the dugout. And you have to be willing to say, Hey, are you getting the job done at the plate? Okay. Let's not mess with it. When it becomes a problem, let's take a look at it. But I'm, I'm willing to let a guy fail for a little bit so that we can have evidence of what's going on rather than trying to get something in his brain and make him think about something other than his ability to execute that could cause problems faster than just letting him have a couple of curveballs that maybe got tipped and they, Hey, he's throwing a curveball when he does this. Fine. Let him let him show you that. If he gets you out, he gets you out. I'm I'm worried about what happens at the plate before what happens on the mound and then from there we can make adjustments.
0: I assume you've been able to watch the playoffs and maybe more specifically the World Series. Now that we've gone through and seen um the starters from both sides like is there anything that that has kind of jumped out jumped out at you just by watching these guys? Because I haven't been able to watch. I mean, the race, watch the Dodgers a little bit this year, but um, just because of scheduling, and I'm more so just you know watching who the Orioles are playing. But anything that's jumped out of you from a pitching standpoint on both sides, aside from the fact that these guys throw really freaking hard.
1: Um, it's uh, it's amazing to me how advanced. These guys are for how young they are. Um, the things that these athletes are capable of doing at this age and the level at which they're able to do it is just astounding. I I know that there's a lot of bitterness in the game right now of like oh well the game's getting changed for the worse and all this. I watch that baseball game and I get excited. I I I watch Tyler Glasnow toe the mound against Clayton Kershaw and. I told my wife last night I was like, "Hey, don't don't talk to me. I I've, I've got a game I'm watching. Like, I want to watch this." Um, you get to see how maturity and you get to see how mental composure plays a massive part in the game. Clayton Kershaw is notoriously bad in the playoffs. He's been good this year. He hasn't been great, but he's been good. And for Clayton Kershaw being good, that's better than average for anybody. And I think that I think that goes a long way. In, in that conversation. But last night when, when Margot tried to steal home, he was like Kershaw was in the middle of that normal long pot. He had so much mental clarity that he was able to make a snap reaction. Like you're doing this. A lot of guys are going to look at the guy and want to make a move. Uh, uh-uh. He heard what he was doing. He stepped off and he executed. And because he could, he knew where he was, he was so comfortable in his process he didn't make that mistake. And you can only have that by being harnessed in the forges of fire. And he has been in the biggest situations he's done. that. I mean, the Dodgers have been there, what, three out of the last four years? I mean, that pressure didn't phase him. And being able to watch that, I want to impart that. I want to show every kid that I work with, like, guys, that's what being in control of yourself on the mound looks like. I don't care if Kershaw's not throwing 100 miles an hour. He controlled the game. And therefore, he gave his team a chance to win. That that right there is the biggest thing that I've taken from it. You see that a lot in the Dodgers right now, as you see the experience of the situation, even going over to their younger guys. Dustin May did not look great in the outing before last night. He was kind of flying all over the place. The ball was everywhere. I don't know if there was a conversation in the clubhouse. I don't know if someone talked to him before the game or whatever he went in there and looked more dialed in last night than I think I've ever seen him throw. And he, he threw his hardest pitch of his career. His stuff was disgusting and he com- he commanded the game. And I think that comes from a presence in the dugout teaching him, Hey, we've been here before. Let us tell you what's going on. I, I really think that I, that's the biggest thing i picked up. Um, the Rays, I think the Rays have the best like pitching staff and arms in this thing, but I think they're also really young. I think Glasnow last night was trying to do a little bit too much. He wanted to try and win that game to keep the momentum rolling from that walk-off in game four. And I think he just tried to overdo things, but I don't know him. I don't know him on a personal level. I can't I I can't read his mind, but just watching the game, that's what I saw.
0: Yeah, it was pretty cool to see how there was Glasnow who was throwing pumping a hundred and one, just nasty stuff. And then there's Kershaw, who was sitting 90 really, but he has mm-hmm. the experience and just it's just incredible I kind of what you alluded to a little bit there of of just self-awareness and and just being great at what he's good at a lot of times and even you know that he wasn't like you said great but he was good enough and that's what that's what matters Uh, quarter this has been a lot of fun man I appreciate you coming on the show today Um, if someone wants to get in contact with you what's the best way to go about it and we'll make sure to put your website on the show notes too
1: yeah, best way is just reach out through uh, through Twitter. It's okay. at maximized underscore bsb. Um, I'm pretty active on there. Just like that's just my main social media. I don't do anything personal on social media through that. It's just it's just baseball. But that's the best way to get a hold of me, or through my website, just through email.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Colder. Appreciate it, man. Absolutely, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my episode with Colder Bostic. Uh, Again, if you want to ask him any questions or anything to follow up on. Make sure to head on over to Twitter, give them a follow at Maximize underscore Baseball. While you're at it, make sure if you're not already following me at P_Jones_Baseball Baseball on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, it's all the same handle, at P Jones Baseball. If you ever have any questions about any of the episodes or just anything regards to player development in general, just send me an email, jonesbaseballtraining at gmail.com. Hope everyone out there is doing well, and I'll see everyone next week.